Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today's selection is the 1981 Canadian sci-fi horror thriller Scanners, directed by David Cronenberg, a film that I first became aware of because it was much beloved by my dad when I was young. I remember being a little kid, like, I think sort of hearing my dad needle my mom by being like, remember Scanners? (laughs) Um, And uh, so long before I ever saw it. I knew the one thing that everybody knew about this movie, which is that Scanners is a movie in which a guy's head explodes, which means Scanners is a certain type of film. And that type is the film that is apparently widely known for one thing that happens in it, for one particularly shocking, horrifying, or uh, otherwise uniquely salient scene or moment, whereas the rest of the film is much less known. I I think this might be like the prime example of that. So like if you mention scanners to most people, I think a maybe the majority of people will be able to say like, Oh yeah. Isn't that the movie where a dude's head blows up, but not Mm -hmm. many people will know anything else about it. Uh, I was trying to think of other examples of this, uh, uh, like the kind of movie that is mostly known for like one moment or scene in isolation. And and people don't remember that much else. Multiple Ridley Scott movies come to mind. Uh, I, I I am generally very intimately familiar with Alien because I've watched it a, a bajillion times, but I think that's sort of one of them. It's a movie where a monster bursts out of a guy's chest at the dinner table, and maybe most people know that but don't know anything else. Uh, Rachel suggested another Ridley Scott movie, uh, Thelma and Louise. It is the movie where a car goes over a cliff. Yeah, like I don't think I've seen Thelma and Louise. 
but I've seen that scene, you know, like that yeah. scene has been presented to me. Parodies of that scene have been presented. And therefore, I feel like I know Thelma and Louise, even though I do not. Yeah. Uh, one that came to mind for me, a more recent example might be uh, Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water, uh, the movie in which a woman and a fish man make love, albeit, I think, tastefully and off screen, if I'm remembering <laughs> correctly, or one of those two things. Um uh, but uh, but that's a film where there's a lot more going on there. And, and uh, I think it's a pretty solid picture. But that was the thing that was you know showing up in late night monologues and so forth. Yeah. In other ways, I think you might look at films like Basic Instinct and Bad Lieutenant. They can come to mind for, for other reasons that, uh, uh, yeah. that people would call them out for. Oh, there's this one scene where something happens. Um, and in a backwards way to channel another Fishman movie, the promotional material for 1980s Screamers. Uh, which was the U.S. Corman re-release of an Italian uh, film, Island of the Fishmen, uh, tried to promote itself as the movie in which a man turns inside out, despite no such scene occurring in the motion picture. <laughs> That's a good idea. The, the, I can't think of another example. It'd be like if Scammer, uh, Scammers, Scanners was known as the movie where a head explodes, but it didn't actually happen in the movie. Yeah, that would that would be really, uh, really lame. Uh, whereas in reality, I mean, they knew they had a great scene there. Uh, yeah. I was reading that originally that scene was going to happen first, but given the cinema and, and movie going culture of the time, they knew it's like, well, people are going to come in late. Um, I, I guess they, uh, anyone who's watching films in, at the theater in 1980, please tell me, I, I'm assuming there were fewer trailers because now you've got a solid half hour of trailers. Yeah. But the concern was at the time, well, people are going to come in late. They're going to miss our key scene. We've got to offset it a bit with some other introductory material. I mean, it is a really great scene. So anyway, I, I grew up hearing about this movie in the terms previously described. I saw it at some point uh, after which I thought it was a cool, creepy thriller. I had, you know, modestly positive feelings about it. I also thought there were a few elements that didn't work so well. And they were some of the same elements that have been criticized by critics, especially when the movie initially came out. Uh, but in the intervening years, I think critics uh, who have looked back on Scanners have had a more robustly positive appraisal of it. And I found myself having, having exactly the same reaction on my most recent rewatch. I gained a, a much more unqualified appreciation for it. I think Scanners is just, just awesome. And some of the criticisms or the things about it I used to criticize, I now actually think are strengths. Uh, this movie is so much more than an exploding head. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I was also surprised at how well it held up and, and how much I enjoyed it. Uh, in, in past viewings, I think I had that similar experience where I was like, well, there's a lot of great things going on here, but A, B, and C don't really work for me all that well. Mm -hmm. I think for the most part, my criticisms were somewhat dulled uh, in my, uh, my recent uh, rewatch of the film. Uh, so it's going to be fun to get into all that. Now, you were talking about your, your dad being a fan of it and talking about the exploding head and all. I have to say, for my part, before I even knew there was an exploding head scene in this movie, my earliest memories were of the box art at the VHS rental store and the poster for it, which I think would have oh. also been on the wall at the VHS rental store, because this alone really freaked me out. Chef kiss. Yeah, this is the one uh, you, you, you see. You see this in a lot of the, the, the current materials for the film. This is the one that shows Michael Ironside's character in just full rending, like straight limbed scanner mode, uh, nearly like a full body representation, just completely scanning out. 
Uh, it's just absolutely terrifying. It represents uh, some. Uh, it's supposed to represent the way the character looks in the the final showdown of the picture, which is in and of itself a horrifying sequence. I would say more horrifying, maybe less shocking, but more horrifying than the 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 headburst scene. Uh, this art, I had to look it up. This is apparently poster art by Joanne Daly who is credited with some other really awesome VHS-era poster and box art, stuff like Creepshow, Popcorn, Prison. Prison's one that I never saw, but I remember distinctly this weird, uh, like, skull prison-looking VHS box art. Oh, yeah. She did something truly amazing here. So it is representing the scene where, like, the veins are popping out and all that, but there's also just... um there's an aura around Michael Ironside and the way that uh, all of the textures of his skin and clothes and his hair are like, they're like rising up off of him as if he's literally sublimating. Like his body is, is, is so hot. It's turning into a gas. Yeah. And there's this, it's not even like a subtext to it. Cause like the, the, the poster art, some of the poster art and the lobby cards I was pulling up for it, it has the tag lines on it, like 10 seconds, the pain begins 15 seconds. You can't breathe 20 seconds. You explode. It's saying, look at this horrible vision of a man. This could happen to you. Watch this movie to find out why. Mm. That's what happens when you uh, combine pop rocks and, and uh, Pepsi, right? Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, yeah, this poster really does capture, I think, the a lot of the shocking imagery of that final scanner showdown, this vision of psychic power as this thing that kind of channels violently through you and will, if left unchecked, just completely destroy you in the process. Yeah. It reminds me a bit of the, the, the 1990 film, which, of course, came out a decade later, of Toby Hooper's Spontaneous Combustion that we talked about on the show. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, I see the similarity though. I have to, I think the scanners is in a league above spontaneous combustion, but yes, I see what you're talking about. Yeah. But, but both films do have a similarity in that they're both films where psychic powers of different types are dangerous to everyone. Uh, there is this, this wild unchecked energy and also has potentially disastrous effects for the individual that is experiencing them. Yes. All right, Joe, what's your elevator pitch for this film? All right. Cameron Vale can hear people's thoughts, and it makes his life a living hell. He wanders the underground malls of Canada as a miserable outcast until he meets a mysterious scientist who informs him that he is a scanner and there are others like him. But instead of a community of brothers and sisters, Cameron discovers a secret war, and now the war has discovered him. Uh, That's pretty good. Yeah, uh, that a secret war is key to it. Like, and that's I think one of the things that works so well about this film is there are all these different layers of intrigue to it as you proceed through the picture. Well, I would say actually, the secret war is um, something that I really noticed on this uh, viewing of it. Uh, it really stood out to me as a shared theme between Scanners and one of Cronenberg's uh, other big movies, Videodrome. Because if you think about it, both movies are about a naive protagonist who gets inadvertently swept up into an ongoing secret conflict between at least two existing factions or forces, uh, which uh, I'm not sure why, but that in itself is just like a really exciting, almost intoxicating plot dynamic. It's specifically the thing about the fact that like, The conflict is ongoing and it's done by these powerful forces, but it's like invisible to to all regular people. 
Uh, and uh, so, you know, Videodrome and the cathode ray mission are already out there. They're plotting their campaigns against one another. But somehow the war has remained in the shadows, and suddenly the main character is made aware of it and sucked into it and is being played by one side against the other. And in the case of Scanners, the secret war is between an amoral arms manufacturer uh, or arms manufacturing and security firm, that's Consec. And then on the other hand, you have this murderous front of the Scanner Underground. Yeah, and I love how the the players in this game, in the secret war, if you will, they're not nation states. They're not governmental agencies. They're corporations and mm -hmm. um, social movements and, uh, and, and rogue organizations that, again, are just kind of all in the not even all in the underworld, like some of it is in a corporate boardroom, you know, that kind of setting. And I guess I guess that does kind of match up with some overarching themes that you see in media from the 80s you see it in cyberpunk you see it in uh, uh in, in various other pictures where it's yeah we're in this 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 realm where it's it's corporations against corporation and and uh, these other entities i think um cronenberg and, and also william gibson uh are both have both proven themselves over the years really good at, at uh, also integrating these uh, yeah, the, the social movements, artists, and other things into these weird uh, views of the future and, of course, of the present. Now, um, I, I mentioned one of the taglines for the picture, actual taglines for the picture um, uh, earlier, but uh, here are just a few more. Uh, there's, of course, their thoughts can kill. That's kind of what the picture's about. Mm -hmm. uh, also, there are 4 billion people on Earth, 237 are scanners. I like that. That's kind of cherry-picked from the screenplay <laughs> that, yeah. that's referring to a part in, in the film. They're kind of bending it a little bit, but it gives it that kind of provocative feeling that, that works well with the tagline. Yeah, I don't know if that's actually accurate to the script because I think the number is 236, and that comes from the list of known scanners, yeah. the ones that are known to Consec, but there are other ones that are not known to them. And and also, it's not just like this is the percentage of the human population that are just going to be scanners. We find out why there are scanners in the, in the picture. But the one that really stood out to me this time is you are about to experience the outer reaches of future shock. Hmm. And uh, that, of course, uh, that tagline is obviously invoking the 1970 Toffler book, Future Shock. Uh, and it's one that I hadn't run across before uh, regarding this picture, but it really got me thinking about this film uh, in a different light. Because Future Shock, uh, just to remind everyone, it was this this concept uh, that uh, essentially you were dealing with or would be dealing with a kind of trauma brought on by rapid advances in technology that would outstrip our ability to understand them or change with them. Um, so don't don't think of it necessarily as some sort of like a movie Future Shock, like ah technology is advancing too quickly and it made my, my head explode, but more of a, of a, like a cultural malaise even. Mm. Uh, but I wonder if, if the scanner, the, the individual that is a scanner in this picture is in some ways kind of a physical embodiment of this idea of future shock. They're, they're changed. They're potentially dehumanized in the process of this change. And they run the risk of being less than themselves and more of a conduit. Uh, in the film, by doing nothing, one man is almost reduced to a kind of zombie state. Another becomes a, a monster. And two other characters we meet are able to channel this change into creation and community. Yeah. Uh, but it's like they're all dealing with it in different ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think about one reaction to if you take the concept of future shock seriously, I think one of the most common reactions to it actually is a kind of uh, disengagement or listlessness that comes from the fact that 
like if you can't understand the forces that are driving the world, it just kind of makes it feel like it's pointless to try to do anything or change anything because you, you don't you don't understand how the machine works. So, right. you, you know, why would you even try to mess with it? Um, and I, I see similar themes running around in scanners, like the idea that you, your agency can be removed when there are forces governing your life that you don't understand. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let's go ahead and hear some trailer audio for this one. In this case, uh, we're drawing on the actual radio spot, uh, which is a lot of fun because everything is audio. This is the audio as it's intended. You are not supposed to glimpse an exploding head in this trailer. Ten seconds, the pain begins in your flesh, in your brain. Fifteen seconds, you can't breathe. It chokes you. It destroys you. 20 seconds. You explode. Experience the terrifying power of scanners. Their thoughts can kill. Rated R. Restricted. Under 17. Not admitted without parent. I like this radio trailer, too, because it, it, it again, a very sonic experience that I think delivers on some of the, the just the excellent uh, music and sound effects in this picture that help uh, bring about this weird, creepy, psychic feeling. The movie not only has good music, but I would say the the sound design is really important in, oh, I don't know, moments that feel less like music, but more just kind of like the pulses and throbbing and drone sounds that occur when mm-hmm. a scanning session is taking place. Absolutely. Now, before we get into the, the plot, just if you're wondering, well, where can I watch Scanners? Well, it's widely available. You can stream this one, purchase it, rent it uh, in very many places, uh, including as part of the Criterion Collection. This one's, uh, up, this one's uh, cemented in the collection alongside the likes of Fiend Without a Face. Ah, that's wonderful. I like when a film that was initially regarded by reviewers as as trash or as just, you know, some scummy bit of garbage, it gets the Criterion stamp of approval. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because you look back on on uh, writings about Cronenberg during this time period, and a lot of times he's treated with a sense of danger. Like, this is a dangerous weirdo they're letting make films. Um, and do we dare watch it ourselves? And to a large extent, I feel like we're past that. Like, we've seen the uh, this, this full career by Cronenberg, a career that's still ongoing. And we have a more complete understanding of what his sensibilities are. And yeah, many of them are weird. Um, but I guess there's less of a feeling of this is a dangerous man making dangerous films. And yet in rewatching scanners, I could definitely feel some of that, especially in the the final showdown between our, our main scanner characters. It, I, I, there was a, an unhinged, unsafe energy to it. Uh, I mean, I, I love his films by and large, but yeah, it's, it's hard to maintain that illusion of, of absolute danger after you've seen his scene in Jason X for one. (laughs) And after you've seen his hair. Yes. It's it's a marvelous head of hair. All right. Well, let's talk about him a a little more in depth. Yeah. David Cronenberg, the director and writer of this picture, born 1943 as of this recording, uh, very much still alive and still making films. Thank goodness. Yeah, what what can you say? Uh, legendary Canadian master of the weird, prophet of the new flesh. His first full-length film was 1969 Stereo. And from there, he went on to direct 1970s Crimes of the Future and a whole string of TV projects before returning to the weird with 1975's Shivers, followed by 1977's Rabid, 
and also the Normie 1979 racing movie Fast Company. Uh, that's one I was actually tempted to do on the show here because we've been kind of building up to actually doing a David Cronenberg film on a podcast series about weird films. It seems like it shouldn't have taken us two years to get here, but it, it's, it's we had to pick the right one. And for a little bit there, I was thinking, well, we almost can't pick a regular Cronenberg film. We should just do Fast Company. Mm, yeah, there's a lot of I mean, like. I think we tend toward movies that are a little bit like funnier or more fun to discuss. And a lot of Cronenberg movies are, are really fascinating, but they're also like really downers. They're like really bummers in one way or another. Um, yeah. I think scanners is not quite that. So it's on, it's on the lighter side of uh, even as dark as it is, it's on the <laughs> lighter side of the Cronenberg spectrum. Yeah. You would, I don't think you would ever describe scanners as fun. But it, but compared to the, the the larger filmography of Cronenberg, yeah, it's 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 on the fun end of the spectrum. Anyway, after Fast Company, that's when he did a trio of films that kind of I feel like kind of set the tone for Cronenberg weirdness: The Brood, Scanners, and Videodrome. All three of those between 1979 and 1983. He followed these up with 1983's Stephen King adaptation, The Dead Zone. Uh, he did one episode of Friday the Thirteenth, the series. 1988's Dead Ringers, 1991's Naked Lunch, 93's M. Butterfly, 1999's Existence, 2002's Spider. And from here he drifted more into, I guess, serious crime drama, violent crime drama for a spell there with 2005's A History of Violence in Eastern Promises. Then he did A Dangerous Method and uh, and then Cosmopolis. But at this point, uh, oh, there's also a map, what a map of the stars I think is in there as well. Hmm. Um but now he's back to his roots. He's returned to his roots with 2022's Crimes of the Future, which uh, I'm to understand has no actual connection to uh, the 1970 film Crimes of the Future uh, beyond the title. But yeah, he's 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 back working on weird films again. I mean, not I, mean, I guess they're all weird films, but certainly weird speculative films. And I believe his upcoming picture is going to be about communion with the dead. Mm, okay. Which was, I, I've never seen it, but is Existence the one that I've heard described as just a remake of Videodrome, but with video games instead of TV? Yeah, I, I think that's 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 a pretty fair statement. Now, I haven't seen it in probably in 20 years, but I remember it having that kind of like, uh, you know, creepy new flesh vibe, mm -hmm. but with game cartridges and weird <laughs> uh, flesh guns and so forth. I, I just bring that up because it's the video games of 1999, which I think has got to be like the funniest era of games ever. Like the, the Nintendo 64 PlayStation one kind of era, like those early 3d games that, that if you look at any game from that era now, uh, it chances are, it's going to be hilarious. Yeah. Unless you had a Cronenberg 64. Now that, now that was a console. <laughs> you took your cartridge and you, uh, uh, yeah, you just I shouldn't explain how it all worked. Anyway, <laughs> Scanners is based on a couple of different psychic scripts that he apparently had going in the late seventies. The Sensitives and Telepathy Two Thousand. These were apparently both films he was going to pitch to uh, Roger Corman. Mm. And uh, this whole thing though was rushed into production to take advantage of Canadian tax subsidies at the time. So 
Uh, he was apparently writing scenes for scanners, oftentimes the morning before they would film later in the day. Wow. So it made for a rather demanding production overall. I think there may have also been some issues, um, as, you know, uh, some conflict uh, between some of the cast members, if I'm uh, uh, to understand correctly. Uh, so I don't think it's necessarily a film that Cronenberg himself looks back on as being like, you know, this this great experience. And maybe... I mean, when we, if you're considering it being a film that was that was rushed, maybe you can see some of the rush in the uh, the resulting picture. But I don't know. It, it, it's still pretty solid. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that the, the writing is actually quite good, I think. Yeah. Yeah. There's maybe one speculative leap that doesn't work so well, but we'll yeah. we'll get to that. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. We, we'll get there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this film certainly made its mark, and not everyone understood it at the time. Um, it uh, some of the critics didn't get it, but it it earned its place in in cinematic history. It certainly developed a, a cult following and garnered uh, what four sequels over the years? I think two proper scanner sequels, and then also two scanner cop films. Yeah, I think I've seen all the sequels and I don't really remember much about them, except that uh, I think we had a really fun time watching a uh, probably the second Scanner Cop movie with like Czech dubbing. <laughs> yeah, they and they keep uh, they keep threatening to remake Scanners, either, either as a movie or a TV series. And I think it. It, it's never come together for one reason or another. I think at one point a director said they would do it if Cronenberg said it was all right. And Cronenberg said, nah, and so it didn't happen. Um, he didn't give it his blessing. Uh, so I don't know. It's, it's one of those, like a lot of these things, like, yes, if it had to be remade, I could imagine somebody could do it correctly. And in a, in a way that would, uh, would be a, a cool and insightful exploration of the, the world that is created in the original picture. But on the other hand, we don't really need it because the film works exceedingly well on its own. Agreed. Now, I uh, do want to mention one more thing about Cronenberg before we move on from him, which is uh, recurring themes of Cronenberg movies. Of course, Cronenberg makes a lot of movies in the horror genre. And uh, unlike the most common horror movie threat of straightforward danger to your life, right? That's what most movie monsters or bad guys are. They're threatening you with physical violence of some kind. The most common threat in Cronenberg movies, I would say, is not direct threats to your life, but threats to your self-identity. Hmm. Uh, he makes movies most often that are about a loss of the boundaries of the self or a change of the self into something monstrous. And a lot of these uh, have a very uh, kind of like squishy tactile quality to them. Like his movies are known for body horror where there's some kind of disgusting change happening to your body and you are becoming something alien. In the case of Scanners, I would say the broader theme does hold, but it's less about the body and more a type of mental identity horror, like there are threats to the integrity of the mind or the soul. Yeah, like it's it's not just, uh-oh, my torso is now a VHS player. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's that added level of what does it mean that I am now a physical receptor for media, that sort of thing. Like, yeah, it's uh, it, it's always a more more thoughtful and intellectual exercise. But always weird. I, I, I yeah. do want to try. Yeah. It's easy with someone like Cronenberg to get really, you know, you start talking or thinking about it too much. And you're like, yeah, man, it's just this is a metaphor for the way that we think about ourselves in media. Like, yes, all of that is true. But also it's just really weird, too. 
Yes, undeniable. I mean, the other thing is, like, I didn't really mention this so much because it's hard to describe exactly what it is, but all of Cronenberg's movies that I've seen have in common this creepy, uneasy Canadian vibe. There's just mm-hmm. something that's that's an energy that all of them share uh, that is difficult to put into words. It's sort of a type of coldness, a kind of uh, observing of human human reaction with a bit of a distance that that makes it a little more alien and a little more dangerous and uh, a little more removed from mundane reality. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. But it, it is hard to really nail down exactly what it is at times. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, getting into the cast here. Uh, and I, I have to mention, one of the things I always love about Cronenberg films, the, the character names are always yes. really interesting. And our first character here is the character Cameron Vale. But the actor who plays Cameron Vale, our, our main uh, protagonist here, also his, his real name also sounds like a Cronenberg movie name, Stephen Lack. Mm-hmm. So I might en- end up getting mixed up and referring to the character as Stephen Lack or to the actor as Cameron Vale, because <laughs> they both kind of come together for me here. I will deduct no points. <laughs> so Stephen Lack was born in 1946, Canadian actor, active from the mid-1970s through around 2002. This is probably his biggest role, though he also pops up uh, in a small role in Cronenberg's Dead Ringers. He also wrote and starred in 1977's The Rubber Gun, directed by Alan Moyle. And another couple of films of note are 1980's Head On and 1984's Perfect Strangers, Perfect Strangers being a Larry Cohen erotic thriller. I had no idea there was such a thing. If it could put butts in seats, then then Larry Cohen probably (laughs) at least wrote a screenplay for it. Perfect. Uh, So regarding Stephen Lack and the character Cameron Vale, uh, this is one place where I want to fully criticize and rebuke my own previous opinion about Scanners. I remember thinking in the past that a weak point in this movie was that the the protagonist is sort of a cipher. He he lacks defining individual characteristics and often seems to be operating without a sense of personal agency. You know, like you often don't quite know why he's doing what he's doing. He's just sort of been launched into an action by mm-hmm. the people around him and he just follows through. Now, upon reviewing, I still think this assessment of the character is true. But I actually don't think it's a shortcoming of the movie at all. I think it is literally the point of the character. There are multiple scenes uh, exploring the effects of telepathy on the development of personality. This character is a is a scanner. He's a telepathic character. And the movie posits that if a person has the ability to read other people's thoughts and they have no power to control this ability or turn it off at will, it essentially prevents them from developing a personality or from having individual thoughts. So in the world of scanners, the the sort of lost, wandering, untreated scanner's mind is like living in a world where every single person in your vicinity is constantly, just incessantly screaming at you with a megaphone. And In such a world, would you ever be able to develop a voice of your own? So I I think the fact that Cameron Vale is sort of like an adult with the mind of a newborn, launched on missions he doesn't understand, following through with them for reasons that don't quite seem clear, uh, you know, things are going on without his agency and he's just sort of like going along with the flow. It makes complete sense, in my opinion. The arc of the movie is the character going from this state of undifferentiated mental cacophony and uh, and lack of agentic control over his own uh, missions and behavior to the point of having a mind and purpose of his own? 
I completely agree. Yeah, this is a performance that I think in the past I saw as a weak point. I saw, I think I focused too much on the similarities between this performance, this character, and poor performances or poorly defined characters in various other B-movies. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think it, it totally works within the context of the film here uh, for all the reasons you point out. Um, and, the, and, and also I have to, to, to say, like, there are a lot of movies that feature what I think of as doll men or baby men, where you have some sort of reason for a person being like this, like maybe they're a clone or they're an alien in human form from another world. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it just plays completely stupid uh, on the screen and you just feel like you're watching a farce. Uh, But Vale doesn't really fall into this category, at least for me. Like he's, he's still molded by the world. He's not a complete babe in the woods, at least in many respects. We see him with help, become uh, far more functional. Uh, so th- there, there seem to be plenty of things about him that are unmolded, of course. He's never developed a personality. His inner thoughts have, have just been the default networks and, and inner thoughts of those around him rather than his own. So he is, he's almost like this, this robot, but in a way that, uh, I don't know, it just, it, they, it, Cronenberg is able to strike the, the right balance here. And of course, credit to Lack too. No, I know exactly what you're saying. Like he's not the he's not the sort of pure doll man kind of creature you're talking about. This is a character who has faced a lifetime full of experience and hardship. So he's not without experience. He's had tons of experience. He's had tons of struggle, but he just hasn't really had a self throughout all of it. Yeah, yeah. And uh and also it's never played up for comic relief either. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's never like what is love, doctor? Uh, or anything like that, um, uh, ignoring also the fact that it's Dr. Ruth, but we'll get to Dr. Ruth in a bit. Oh, uh, one more point on Stephen Lack, though. Uh, I have to say, great eyes on this actor. He yes. has this, these just wonderful, um, like, wide eyes that are just brimming with childlike innocence, but also the sense of absorption, that childlike absorption. Like, everything is uh, being taken in by these wide eyes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I disagree with my former self. Thumbs up to the character and thumbs up to the performance by Lack. All right. That was our chief protagonist. Our chief antagonist is Daryl Revick, played by the wonderful Michael Ironside. I would argue Michael Ironside is in the running for best film heavies of all time. He emits fumes of menace and it's not just his physical presence. I mean, he does have a great uh, villain or henchman look. Uh, he he he's a great actor and every line reading in this movie is like the tip of a box cutter being extended <laughs> it's just perfect superb villainy yeah it's an intense performance that absolutely works with this character who is uh, uh, again, it's it, this is a scanner character, much like uh, you know, several different scanner characters. But he is an extreme individual, uh, so you need an extreme performance powering it. That's not to say that it's just always cranked up to ten. There are also plenty of scenes uh, where it, where it's a, a much more subtle performance. Uh, but when when Ironside needs to crank it up, he can crank it up like few others. I'll suck your mind dry. <laughs> Ironside was born in 1950, Canadian character actor who's played just, yeah, so many fantastic heavies and authority figures and maniacs over the years. Uh, his work goes all the way uh, back to the mid-70s, but the scanner seems to have helped propel him into larger villain roles. Uh, he followed this one up with 1981's Surfacing, 1982's Visiting Hours, and the fun sci-fi romp 
uh, Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, in which he plays a, an evil, snarling cyborg opposite Peter Strauss, Molly Ringwald, and Ernie Hudson. Whoa. Yeah, it's a fun one. We may, we, that one's kind of on the, in my back pocket uh, for some time when we're not sure what picture to view for Weird House. Uh, it sounds wonderful. He did a lot of TV work, smaller pictures after that. But in the mid-'80s, he appeared in Top Gun. Uh, he was in 1988's Watchers, the adaptation of the Dean Koontz novel with the talking dog. He's in Highlander 2, The Quickening. We can't forget yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, and he's uh, Richter in 1990's Total Recall. Great Amazing. heavy role in that. So good. And yeah, he's just continued to keep the tap flowing with villain and heavy roles. Uh, like he's a, this is an actor who has worked a lot and continues to work a lot. 271 credits on IMDb as of right now. Let's see, he's done a lot of TV. Tales from the Crypt, The 90s Outer Limits, Canada's Danger Bay that I watched as a kid. Um, and uh, I, there's also a film by the name of Neon City from 1991 that I have not seen, but I know has been uh, recommended to us by by viewers, uh, rather listeners. You're not viewing this, you're listening to it. All right, another scanner character in the picture is Kim Obrist. That's uh, another nice uh, Cronenberg character name, played by Jennifer O'Neill, born 1948. Uh, I, I'd say another great performance. Jennifer O'Neill is excellent in this role, and her character is a very interesting one in contraposition to the other sort of powers in the movie. The, this character emerges essentially when Cameron Vale discovers a third faction. So you got the powers of Consec, the the evil corporation, and Revic's scanner army, and they're going at it against each other. And, uh, and of course, Revic wants to control scanners as like an army to to sort of dominate the the weaker non-scanner human beings. Consec wants to control an individual scanner's power to use them as a weapon for the highest bidder. Um, and these are portrayed as potential like lone wolf psychic assassins. And in contrast to the sort of like individual will to power of these other two uh, factions going at each other, Kim Oprist seems to be starting what looks almost like a scanner religion or something where one where the scanners deliberately sort of reject individuality and commune with one another. And they, they host rituals where they fully inhabit one another's minds in these group circle uh, rituals. They even form a sort of like, like a shared collective consciousness. Uh, and there, there's a haunting scene where they're doing this. They're fully mind melding in a circle. Uh, they keep talking about like, you know, lose yourself. It is power. You know, what do they say? Like, it is terrifying. It is beautiful or something. And then Revik's assassins bust in and start shooting them. And some of them are killed. And in the escape after the scene, Jennifer O'Neill's character turns to Cameron and says, now I know what it feels like to die. Yeah, it's a, it's a great performance, and I do love yeah, as well how this is uh, this is presented as this sort of third option in in the, the the scanner change that's occurring in the world. Like, what if it? What if we didn't approach this as 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 a as a method of violence, or why? What if we didn't approach this as like a security threat, but an opportunity as a way of coming together? But I, I do think that's the case. But also, I like that Kim Oberst's community is not presented as just purely wholly like good and wholesome like there's something kind of freaky about their you know the mm -hmm. scene where they're all communing with each other like they they are clearly being entranced by something some other level of consciousness they're achieving by by linking their minds together in that way 
And while they're not, they don't have overtly violent intentions that we see in the movie, there's a sense of like, we don't know what this is becoming. This is could just right. could be some other thing that could be great or could be awful. Yeah, there's potential dangerous opportunity here. And we get a sense of that, too, when they kind of fight back and yeah. catch the assassins on fire. Um, like there's a sense or at least the sense I got from it was that this was not an individual movement, but this was maybe like a reflex of the collective consciousness that they were summoning uh, between their their collective minds. Yes. I, and the performance is, is pretty solid, too. Yeah, this uh, Jennifer O'Neill, Brazilian-born actor and former model who had quite an acting career in the 60s and 70s, especially. She was in Howard Hawks' last film, Rio Lobo, in 1970. She worked with such directors as Robert Mulligan, Otto Priminger, Blake Edwards, and J. Lee Thompson. And she was the titular character in Lucio Fulci's The Psychic from 1977. Oh, interesting. A uh, yeah. little, bit, little bit of overlap there. Yeah. So I don't know if they, if they were like, we need a psychic for this picture. And they're like, well, I just saw this great Italian movie. Well, <laughs> let's get Jennifer yeah. O'Neill. All right. We've mentioned the scientist that leads our um, our protagonist into, um, uh, well, g- gives him a, a sense of himself back, but also then, then gives him a spy mission. This is Dr. Paul Ruth. So, yes, the character is Dr. Ruth, uh, played by Patrick McGowan, who lived 1928 through 2009. Another great performance. I mean, again, I, the cast is just great all around, I think. Uh, McGowan always brings kind of interesting and unexpected take to his roles, I think. Uh, One great example of this, which is a movie that I overall do not like. I I am not a fan of Mel Gibson's Braveheart uh, Mm -hmm. for multiple reasons, but I have always found McGowan's acting choices as the villain in that movie. He plays King Edward I, the Longshanks, uh, he plays him as this absurdly psychotic villain, but in a really irresistible kind of way, chewing the scenery, but with this odd, bemused, high-pitched voice. Yeah, yeah. And in, in this picture, as the, as the Dr. Paul Ruth, he has this kind of... Um... There's the kind of shiftiness to him, you know, like we often see him looking away or looking down at the floor, not making eye contact with the with the characters that he's interacting with, that it, it, it creates an interesting energy. It's you know, we, we've seen similar characters of this type in plenty of other films. You know, the he's sort of in the mad scientist mold. He's so is also in this kind of, uh, uh, you know, teacher and savior mode, or it seems to be for a large portion of the film. Um, but uh, but he has a he has a different energy. I love the moral ambiguity of this character. Like, is is this character a, a good guy or a bad guy? I mean, he he's clearly some of both, and in and not just transitioning from one to the other. Like, he's he's both in an ongoing capacity. Yeah. So McGowan, I don't know. He might have been the biggest name in the film at the time. And and maybe even so in retrospect, uh, an American-born Irish actor, probably best remembered as The Prisoner on the late 60s TV show. Uh, but he was also in uh, the successful Danger Man from the early 60s. He was in 79's Escape from Alcatraz, 95's Braveheart, 96's A Time to Kill. And one of his final credits was a voice uh, actor in 2002's Treasure Planet. I've never seen Danger Man, but that that's a funny name. Yeah, you know, early 60s spy TV show. I think I may have watched a, an episode of it back in the day. Do they have gadgets? I don't know if this was gadget era. You know, this mm. might might have been too soon. But the, the prisoner certainly uh, leaves an impression. Uh, that uh, suitably weird uh, late sixties show. That 
Some of the other bit players are also uh, pretty fun. Robert Silverman plays Benjamin Pierce, uh, a sculptor, a scanner sculptor that we meet uh, in the in the film. Born 1943, kind of a weird Canadian character actor whose work lines up with a couple of folks already mentioned, especially Cronenberg. He pops up in Rabid, The Brood, Friday the 13th, the series, Naked Lunch, Existence, and Jason X, which of course Cronenberg did not direct, but Cronenberg acts in as one of the mad scientists that initially resurrects uh, Jason Voorhees. I think he gets like a spear thrown through his torso. Yeah. Um, Robert Silverman's also in Head On, which we referenced earlier, and he's in 95's Waterworld. Oh, don't remember him in that. Uh, but he's great in this. He, he's good in his Cronenberg roles. He in I think in both of his Cronenberg movies that I've seen, uh, he plays like a character who had some kind of bad interaction with the villain that the protagonist is seeking out and the, and the protagonist has to track him down. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we also have a, a villain by the name of Braden Keller. This is a this is like a henchman character played by Lawrence Dane, who lived 1937 through 2002. A Canadian character actor who was in a ton of things, including Happy Birthday to Me from 1981, Heavenly Bodies from 1984, Bride of Chucky from 98, Head On, Dark Man 2, and much more. He did a lot of TV work in the 60s and 70s. And uh, being a Canadian actor, of course, he was on uh, 90s Outer Limits. He also pops up on Danger Bay and a show called Seeing Things that I'll describe in just a second. He he's a he's a good villain. He's uh he's sort of a a suit villain as opposed to whatever Michael Ironside is. I would say um if Michael Ironside's character is the Clarence Boddicker of this movie, uh Lawrence Dane plays the Dick Jones of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Ironside is anti-establishment or so it seems and uh and Dane is is establishment for sure. There is a character that is just credited as first scanner uh, this is the kind of Frank Oz looking guy whose head explodes uh, in that famous scene from Scanners. This character is played by um, Louis Del Grande, born 1943. And I think I've mentioned Del Grande on the show before due to his various connections. But Canadian actor who is m- mostly known to me that I saw him well, well before I saw Scanners because he was on a series on CBC titled Seeing Things that ran from 1981 through 1987. And I think he was also one of the creators of the show. But it's kind of a lighthearted psychic detective show where he, you know, he's always having visions. He's seeing things with his psychic abilities. And in doing so, he helps to solve the crime in the episode of the week. I I would watch that. Uh, I I like his his vibe. He's only got a very short scene in the movie, but he's quite memorable in it and not just for what happens to a plaster cast of his head. Yeah, he uh, he gets to address the audience, and uh, yeah, yeah, his uh, it's a nice little performance, bit part but very memorable. He's done a lot of work over the years, especially in Canada. Other credits include "Happy Birthday to Me," "Of Unknown Origin" from 1983, "The 90s Outer Limits," "Goosebumps," and "Lex." And uh, a couple of uh, behind the scenes credits here. Howard Shore did the score for this movie, so score by Shore. Uh, born 1946, <laughs> Howard Shore is, of course, a Canadian composer and conductor who's worked extensively in film. He's probably best known for his work on uh, the Lord of the Rings movies for Peter Jackson. Uh, he won an Oscar for at least one of those. And he's also scored all but one of Cronenberg's films since 1979. I believe The Dead Zone is the the, the exception in that list. Hmm. Uh, not only did he write the score to Cronenberg's The Fly, but he also wrote an opera based on the film in 2008. But wow, that's something. 
Yeah, I've I've never seen it, but I I remember seeing stills from it when this was first making the news, and I was like, oh, this looks amazing. This this is the opera for me. Would it be the gooeyest opera ever? I don't know. Actually, some classic operas get get quite bloody. Yeah, but you can't have people slipping in the, the, the slime. So there's only so much you can do. It looks like they had a pretty cool, functional Brundlefly costume for it. Because mm. uh, you, you get into unique challenges for a, a stage performance like that. Anyway, as far as Howard Shore's score for Scanners goes, uh, I really liked it. I was I listened to it in isolation prior to rewatching the film. And it has, it has this kind of boisterous main theme that kind of sounds like Hall of the Mountain King. Um, but in general, it has a lot of these sort of creepy kind of late 70s, early 80s vibes that I guess are also, you could, this is probably just Cronenberg energy as well, since you can't really divorce Cronenberg's films from Shore's music uh, mm-hmm. all that much. But outside of the more traditional sounding stretches of the score, there's a lot of uh, like weird electronic warbly bits and drone stretches that I absolutely love. Uh, so, uh, and also some like percussive chaotic segments as well. Even a lot of the traditional instrumentation sounds unusual. Like there are these, uh, moments of just sort of descending dissonant horns. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's really good stuff. This is definitely, this is a score that's worth listening to as an album, in my opinion. And uh, before we move on, yeah, let's go ahead and just hear a sample from the score. This is just a, a taste of main title and public scanning. And finally, Dick Smith has credits on this film. Special makeup effects consultant Dick Smith lived 1922 through uh, 2014. Just one of many special effects pros on the the motion picture, but he's uh, often singled out as playing a a key role in the opening head explosion. Well, it's not opening, but, you know, early head explosion in the film and the final showdown. He's a special effects makeup legend who worked on such pictures as The Godfather, The Exorcist, Taxi Driver, and Death Because comes her. He won an Oscar for his work on Amadeus. Other notable films include Altered States, 72 episodes of the TV horror anthology Monsters, mm. Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, Starman, oh, and this one's pretty fun, 1957's The Alligator People. Ah, well, I hear the dogs choke on their barking when they see alligator persons in the bog and fog. Yeah, the very same. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. 
Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, well, let's get into the plot for this film. Let's head to the mall. It does start in a mall, doesn't it? But it's it can't be just any mall. It's a really creepy mall. It really is. <laughs> I don't know if Cronenberg picked it because it was an especially creepy looking mall or if all malls in Canada were this creepy at the time. I don't know. How would you describe this mall? Oh, I mean, it's... Uh... Yeah, I, I I didn't look up it, where they filmed this. Uh, it seems like there were some great locations scouting in this picture. It's kind of a splendid scarlet sanctuary of a mall, but mm -hmm. at the same time, not in a way that feels manufactured. Like, there's a scarlet sanctuary feel to some of the settings in Dead Ringers, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, this very much intentional and very much works in that movie. This feels like maybe they just found this really weird uh, crimson augmented mall environment in Canada. And it's just, oh, it's great. It's one of these where I was just taking in all the little, like I wanted to pause it and see what the stores were in the background, you know? Mm -hmm. um, part of it being sort of the, the cultural um, archaeology of watching anything set in a, a mall from the 80s. Totally. But also I would emphasize that it feels like it's underground. I did not yes. detect any hint of natural light whatsoever. And the ceilings are lined with just uh, rows and rows of light bulbs projecting down from the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. It's 
it's absolutely splendid. And th- there's so many little, like there's this one scene where our protagonist pauses in front of a poster for hot pogos. And it shows a, like a cartoon of a kid holding a corn dog. And I was like, what is, uh, what's going on here? Is our, our hot corn dogs called hot pogos in Canada? I just never realized it. Well, I looked it up and according to Wikipedia in Quebec and Ontario, a battered hot dog on a stick is called a pogo and is traditionally eaten with ordinary yellow mustard which is a solid choice. I think yellow mustard is your best condiment for any corn dog experience. At least if you're eating a a real corn dog and a real corn dog in my opinion should either be a fake uh, hot dog at the center, uh, you know like a soy dog or something or if you do eat meat, it should be a meat hot dog that is on the verge of being fake meat. You know, like it's so processed <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. that the difference between it and a soy dog is just negligible. Yeah. But either way, mustard. You got to have mustard. Yeah. Got to get that yellow mustard out for your pogo. So Canadian uh, listeners, I was not aware, but uh, I like it. It sounds more fun in some respects than corn dog pogo. I might go for the hot pogo next time. Well, here is where we meet our protagonist, Cameron Vale. He is wandering the food court of this subterranean uh, underworld mall, snagging people's leftovers. And he he looks disheveled. He's wearing kind of a dirty trench coat. He's being presented as a uh, sort of disoriented, um, uh, skulking outsider. And he's just uh, grabbing people's leftover pogos and stuffing them in his mouth. But unfortunately, he catches the attention of a couple of ladies at a nearby table, and we begin to hear them speaking. They're they're saying things like, oh, I've never seen anything so disgusting in my entire life. We're being stared at. They let creatures like that in here? It's just awful. But wait a second, like, are their lips actually moving while they're saying Mm. these things? Uh, That's not so clear. And Cameron Vale here, he, I guess we don't know his name yet, but this, this character, he's, uh, he's bothered by their talking. We see it appearing to cause him almost physical pain. And so he turns his attention to these, these two ladies and the one of them who seemed to be speaking, though maybe her lips weren't moving, starts to have something that looks like a migraine, which evolves into something that looks like a seizure. Uh, and she's collapsing on the floor. People are trying to help her. But this interaction gets the attention of a couple of tough-looking dudes nearby. And they chase Cameron and immobilize him with a dart gun. Yeah, there's a, a fun action sequence where he tries to get away from him by jumping from one escalator to the next. And it, it looked looked kind of dangerous. I was like, uh, I was like, ah, don't, don't get caught between the elevator escalator and the, the, the ceiling sort of situation. But he manages to make it over, but then succumbs to the tranquilizer dart. Yeah, he collapses on the escalator. And I had the same reaction. I was like, oh, no, don't let like your shirt collar get caught in the. Ugh. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So he, he wakes up later, strapped to a hospital bed in a large room where he is confronted by Dr. Paul Ruth, Patrick McGowan, who gives him kind of a speech. He, you know, he says, Cameron, why are you such a derelict? Uh, they've never met before, but he's introducing himself and and he says he can tell him why he's a derelict. He says, you're a scanner and that has been the source of all your agony. But I will show you now that it can be a source of great power. And from here, dozens of people 
and begin to walk into the room. Uh, Dr. Ruth just has them come in and sit in these rows and rows of chairs. And the more people pour into the room, the more Cameron is in distress. We hear all of their internal monologues at once as a kind of great ocean of voices. And this is, this is torture for Cameron. You see, he's like writhing in pain at hearing all of their voices at once. But eventually... Dr. Ruth provides the cure. He gives Cameron an injection of a drug called ephemeral, and it makes the voices stop. And Cameron has relief. Almost he has relief as if for the first time in his life. Hmm. Now, next comes the most famous scene in the movie, the demonstration. So we see that we're at the headquarters of a corporation called Consec, and there's a demonstration being held for a private audience in an auditorium. And we, we meet a sort of timid, bookish man in a suit and glasses on stage. This is Louis Del Grande, or Del Grande. I, I don't know how you pronounce his name. Yeah, I, I've been saying Del Grande, but, uh, you know, it's just that's because it's such a big performance. You know, it's a big, uh, <laughs> it's a big town. Um, uh, and so uh, this guy begins by giving a speech. He says, I would like to scan all of you in this room one at a time. I must remind you that the scanning experience is usually a painful one, sometimes resulting in nosebleeds, earaches, stomach cramps, nausea, sometimes other symptoms of a similar nature. But he assures them there is a doctor present. He points out the uh, Dr. Gatineau, and he asks that no one leave the room once the demonstration has begun, and he calls for volunteers. And, of course, there's a long, awkward silence because, I don't know, who knows what scanning is? Who wants to be scanned? But finally, a bored-looking man in one of the back rows raises his hand and comes to the stage. And why? It is Michael Ironside. What do you know? And it's not just Michael Ironside. He has an interesting ring-shaped scar above the bridge of his nose. Yeah. Wonder what that is. Perhaps we'll find out later. Hmm. So the scanner uh, doing the demonstration asks Michael Ironside to think of something that the scanner would have no way of knowing, something that will not breach the security of his organization, maybe a personal detail from his life. And Michael Ironside says, all right, I have something in mind. And when you watch the scene knowing what's coming, you can see little sinister flourishes like little uh, smirks and flares of delivery from Michael Ironside as, as he's getting mm -hmm. ready for this thing. Uh, they kind of go by you the first time. For example, Michael Ironside asks the scanner if he has to close his eyes and the scanner assures him that it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And the scanning begins. Both men start by getting very intense looks on their faces, like they're very focused, uh, maybe perhaps both struggling, maybe perhaps both in a little bit of pain. And because we don't know what we're looking at, you could just assume this is what it looks like when the scanner demonstrator reads somebody's mind. But this just escalates and things look weirder and weirder. Eventually, it really starts to seem like something might be wrong. Like, are they supposed to look like they're in this much distress? Uh, and there is an awesome, painful droning sound in the musical score. Uh, I feel like actually just in a recent movie, I was like, uh, do not include painful noises in the score of your movie. I take it back. This, this is why <laughs> you should have it in, in scanners. I was completely wrong. And then suddenly, without warning, the demonstrator's head explodes. And I can see exactly why even people who haven't seen the movie or don't remember anything else about the movie will remember this scene for the rest of their lives. 
It is one of the most shocking, disgusting, unexpected, unbelievable moments I can think of in any movie ever. Uh, I would go so far as to describe this scene as an almost awe-inspiring act of filmmaking. Like, yes, it is gory and gross. And so part of its effect is like pure vulgar exploitation of our squeamishness. But it's also a masterful exercise in in like building uneasiness and the sense of uncertainty and suspense and then relieving that tension with a spectacle that is so nasty it leaves people absolutely speechless. Yeah, you can even knowing what's coming. And again, you don't even have to have seen the film because to, to know what's coming, because the moment of the explosion has just been reproduced. It's become a meme. It's, you can find it all over the place. It's a it's a gif or gif, uh, you know, and uh, uh, on various formats and on discord and so forth. But when it when it hits in the film, yeah, there is that feeling of release that built up pressure, like literal psychic pressure inside uh, this character's head. And then the reaction to from all the characters that are present is pretty amazing. Like even uh, Ironside's character, Reva, is I don't know that you would say he's horrified, but there is a sense that he is perhaps a little shocked at how yeah. how gross the results were or how powerful um, his attack was. Like he, he kind of looks down at the exploded head going like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I know I've read stuff about how this special effect was accomplished. Like, I think they tried it several different ways and thought it, it didn't look right. And they eventually landed on the way that ended up in the final movie, which involved a shotgun. Yeah, which is not surprising given how many shotguns are in this picture. <laughs> I know I I was really this is one of the things on this viewing that I was kind of commenting uh, to myself on. I was like, wow, lots of shotguns in this picture. This yeah. picture has a thing for shotguns. Uh, so, yeah, a shotgun was apparently used a shotgun loaded with salt, I believe. Um, I used a latex head filled with, I believe, dog food, leftovers, fake blood, rabbit livers, all sorts of gross stuff. And I think one of the challenges apparently was they, they wanted it to explode, but they couldn't have it explode with sparks. They wanted it to feel very organic, um, mm. at least in this one instance of, of psychic energy in the picture. Like the idea is that like this is not it's not fire. It's not uh, electricity, per se. It is some sort of almost organic process that's taking place here. Yeah, so it's disgusting. But also, I mean, I, I just want to emphasize again how if you haven't seen it before and you don't know it's coming, I don't know if that's possible for anybody because, the, you know, everybody knows that about this movie. But if you didn't actually know it was coming going in, it would be so shocking and leave you absolutely baffled. And mm -hmm. I love that, the, you know, the audience is just as baffled as like the characters in the room are. But then there's this moment of focus where people start turning to Michael Ironside and, and it's like, did he somehow do that? Like, did the scanner get scanned? And so Michael Ironside's character is apprehended by the CONSEC security guards. The head of security instructs the staff doctor to give Michael Ironside a shot of ephemeral, which, hmm, that's the same stuff that Dr. Ruth gave to Cameron Vale to quiet the voices earlier. And uh, we, we later find out that ephemeral is a scan suppressant. It is a drug that essentially turns off a person's scanner abilities. So they're giving the shot to this guy to disable him. But for some reason... 
the doctor, when he goes to give the shot to Michael Ironside, oh, it's like he can't quite line it upright. It's something's going on in his head, and he accidentally gives the shot to himself instead of to Michael Ironside's hand. And in this, we're seeing uh, the more subtle powers of the uh, of the scanner here. He's able to uh, easily manipulate and puppet those around him into uh, into doing things they don't intend to do. Right. So while the Consec goons are transporting Michael Ironside to another location by car, they get overwhelmed. They strangely start wrecking their own cars and turning their guns on themselves while the prisoner just looks on smiling. Uh, and, uh, well, after that time for a corporate leadership meeting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and what do you know? The scientist who earlier apprehended Cameron Vale, this Dr. Ruth, he is there at the table with the, uh, with the CEO of Consec. So the big boss Trevelyan says in a line that I found so funny, I wrote it down. He says, last night we at Consec chose to reveal to the outside world, our work with those telepathic curiosities known as scanners. The result, six corpses and a substantial loss of credibility for our organization. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know why I keep wanting to compare this to RoboCop, which I guess came later. But the RoboCop meeting with the Ed 209, uh, when he's like, it's just a glitch. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, the Clamp character in Gremlins 2 has a, has a very similar line where it's like like the Gremlins have been rampaging. And he's like, like people could actually get killed. You know, that's what's, what's going to do for the, the, the company, what that's going to do for yeah. our stock value. Well, so anyway, in this scene, uh, which I thought was a, a very interesting and well-written scene in the way it kind of unfurls the the scenario of the movie, we, we learned that the company has a new director of internal security. Uh, Michael Ironside made the previous one shoot himself in the street. So they've got a new guy named Braden Keller. And Keller recommends that the company discontinue its scanner program at once. He says, our company is supposed to specialize in weapons and private armies, not fantasies. And Dr. Ruth replies that, hey, the fact that six of their people were killed and the company was embarrassed in front of industry heads by a lone assassin using only scanning techniques in itself proves that scanners have immense potential as weapons. So we got to keep developing them as weapons. But Keller uh, replies, coming back, saying, oh, but hey, uh, how many scanners do we have working with us right now? Ruth says, as of last night, none. So apparently they had one guy cooperating, and that was Louis Del Grande, the demonstrator. He, mm -hmm. he was their one scanner on the payroll, and Michael Ironside blew up his head. So they have none now. But then Ruth says, Consex Surveillance has gradually lost contact with all the names of scanners on our list, and I submit this is not an accident. I think we've lost them to a program far in advance of ours. Ooh, and that's a good moment. He says, from my study of the situation, I've come to the conclusion that there is a scanner underground developed in North America. Uh, and uh, Keller, you know, he, he's not buying this. He says, that's ridiculous. You, you can't get two scanners to sit in the same room together without going berserk. They can't stand being around one another. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, Ruth says, nope, they're working together, and the underground has a leader. In fact, he's probably the man we met the night before, and his name is Daryl Revick. So he's got a solution. Either we let Daryl Revick just strike at us without retaliation, or we infiltrate his organization and decapitate it. And he's got just the weapon to use on that, the one scanner he just found, Cameron Vale. And so the board approves. They're like, all right, well, let's move with that program. We don't, we don't really need to see a presentation on it. We don't need to meet this guy. Uh, we trust you to do what you do, Dr. Ruth. 
And here we reunite with Cameron Vale. Now, uh, Ruth is back in sort of the gentler mode, uh, less in the, like, we must have weapons and assassins mode. He, now he's talking to Cameron again, and they discuss how Cameron is not used to talking much. Uh, this is the scene where they establish how, with other people's thoughts always filling his head, he was never able to develop an identity or a personality, and that the injection of ephemeral to inhibit his scanning abilities. Since then, he's had a kind of clarity and a sense of self that he never had before, but he's also afraid because for the first time he can, quote, hear himself. Yeah, and this is something, th- this whole view of scanning is is so uh, nicely rolled out throughout the film. You learn a little bit more and more about it, and it never feels like, a, like an info dump or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, you learn that it's like what's going on with scanning is kind of they describe it as like uh, nervous systems interacting with each other. It's this kind of like communal um, engagement between one mind and body and the other. And then it just comes down to like levels of awareness and abilities to manipulate or block that shared state. So with with Cameron Vale, it's like this this idea that. Uh, you know, it's not just that the thoughts are coming in, but there are neural processes that he hasn't really had a chance to develop because the neural processes of others have been flowing in to take up that space in him. Yeah, I, I think this aspect of the movie is so interesting. And I wonder if I almost detect in common with Videodrome a subtle media critique. Uh, which is the idea of, okay, so the scanners are unable to develop a healthy self-identity without either some kind of treatment like taking ephemeral to silence the voices or using some other method of getting other people's voices out of their heads. So like some scanners seem to have been able to cope by like living in total isolation and uh, and sort of uh, like we, we learn about one scanner later who does this through creating art. Um, and I, I wonder, could this be a commentary on nonstop passive consumption of media, such as radio or TV, which if it fills your head constantly with other voices and you're never alone with your own thoughts, could Cronenberg be maybe presenting a subtle argument that that sort of in a way prevents you from having a personality of your own? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty solid read on it. I, I, I think there's a lot of merit to that. So everyone, turn off the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Keep listening to the podcast nonstop at uh, double speed. A triple speed, it's got to be. triple. You can do triple speed if you do a half dose of ephemeral on top of that. Uh, I mean, it's going to vary from listener to listener, but that's a general uh, way you want to handle it. Oh, we also, in this part of the movie, get some some background on Daryl Revick, uh, which is uh, Dr. Ruth shows Cameron some old footage of him in an institution of some kind after he drilled a hole in his own skull. That's the scar on his forehead uh, to to let the pressure out, to release the pressure. And I think we get the impression that, that he means like the voices. And so this was Revick's way of trying to cope with the cacophony. Yeah, this is a nice bit of uh, trepanation exploitation here, uh, and if, and of course this is based on the very real history of uh, of trepanation. If you want to learn more about trepanation, uh, go back into the archives. We did an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind about it several years back. But here we get some indoctrination, right? Like uh, Doctor Ruth is 
teaching Cameron that Revik is his enemy and that Revik will try to recruit him to serve in his crusade to destroy the society that created him. And so Ruth wants to encourage Cameron to get to Revik first. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, how is he going to find Revik? Well, 
From here, I guess maybe we can take a lighter skip through the plot because uh, we don't have to go scene by scene on everything. But some of the main plot points are he's got a first lead, which is another unaffiliated scanner, a guy named Benjamin Pierce, who is uh, an artist, a sculptor who apparently has been able to keep himself sane by creating art. Yeah, creepy, weird art with giant yeah. heads and all sorts of cool stuff. It makes for a, a great scene. Like when they uh, when he's talking to um, to Cameron Vale, they actually go inside a large head, uh, like an yes. enormous um, human head that has like a little like uh, area with pillows in it inside or something. And so they're inside the head talking about the voices inside their head, and it's it's it's, it's nice. It works. So Vale tracks him down through some trickery and uh, and some scanning techniques. But then he also, uh, you know, when he meets him, he's like, I need to find Daryl Revick. And, and uh, dude wants nothing to do with this. Benjamin Pierce is just like, leave me alone. You don't want to do that. Go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but while Vale is there, assassins attack. Revick's guys show up with shotguns. And it's just shotguns wall to wall. Both types of bad guys in this movie have shotguns the concept guys have shotguns revix guys have shotguns i it's like there was a sale at the shotgun store yeah yeah a lot of shotguns in this picture but after this attack Vale survives sort of psychically repelling the uh the the assassins but uh pierce as he dies tells Vale psychically to find somebody named kim oberist and this is where uh, here in this section, uh, Vale goes to Kim Oberist's, would you call it like a scanner commune sort of? Yeah, yeah, kind of a commune situation going on. Uh, now, we already talked a bit about what happens at this place. They they seem to be engaging in a kind of ritual where they enmesh their minds with one another to achieve something previously unknown, beautiful and terrifying. And uh, while they're doing that, Revix assassins track Vale down and attack yet again. There's a big like car chase scene, and only Vale and Kim Oberist survive. Yeah, the, the great sequence where the the bus is crashed through a record store. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed checking out all these various records in the background, some of which were instantly recognizable. Like they have multiple copies of, uh, of a Frank Zappa album back there. You see mm-hmm. a Bowie album, but then there was other stuff I just had to look up. There's this one individual that there's a poster for, Herman Brood. And I was like, is that made up? Is this some sort of a, a nod to the brood mm-hmm. uh, or something? But uh, no, this is, a, this is a, a Dutch musician that I just wasn't familiar with. It was a you know, pretty big deal in some circles. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, various other uh, little details I had to look up. And uh, yeah, just a, just a, a well-crafted sequence and, and, and well-constructed set um, in, uh, in, in, a, in a film that you're not going to remember for its bus crash. Uh, well, anyway, after this whole sequence, Vale uncovers a conspiracy. He does some corporate espionage and figures out that Michael Ironside is working out of the headquarters of a company called Biocarbon Amalgamate. Uh, and he, he sneaks in and he does some computer hacking and determines that they are manufacturing large quantities of ephemeral and shipping them out for some secret purpose. And he wants to find out why, but access to that information is restricted. Yeah, I love the hacking in this because it is yeah. very, I mean, it's very much in line with what you also see in Ridley Scott's Alien. This yeah. was that period where computers worked by asking them a question and then the computer would tell you. You would type request access and it would say access denied. And and then you would type request override and (laughs) say access denied. 
Uh, so anyway, Vale and Oberist want to find out what's going on. So they come in to meet Vale's handlers with Consec. And then there's a big double cross because we find out that the head of security at Consec, Keller, uh, he's secretly working in cahoots with Revik and he wants to kill them. Uh, they escape, but unfortunately, Patrick McGuin, or fortunately or unfortunately, again, a morally ambiguous character, uh, he, he is killed in the process. And here we get into what I think many people now regard as the dumbest part of the movie. <laughs> and I would say if there is anything in the movie that doesn't really work well, it is what we're about to talk about. It is the sequence where Cameron is told by Dr. Ruth that he can... Uh, get the computer files by scanning the computer the same way he scans a human because a computer also has a nervous system. So he goes to a payphone and scans the computer through the phone line. Yeah. I feel like this is a part of the film that, that even I I just can't imagine anyone being 100% on board with this at the time uh, because I just don't feel like a computer is a, a nervous system. And certainly these computers are not nervous systems. However, if you were to make scanners today and set it in the future, I could very well imagine a situation where your computers are wetware computers that have some sort of organic uh, neural you know, component to them. And in that case, I think you could you could make an argument that, well, our psychics are able to commune with the computer because there is this they have this organic base in common. So if the if they were trying to hack not the uh, the computer system here but the elevator from the lift, uh, you know that would make more sense. <laughs> oh man, yeah, that would be good. Uh, but yeah, I think this I regard as the weakest point in the film. I think the sequence goes on a little too long. Um, it's not as interesting as the rest of the movie is. So there's like a, a an attack and counterattack through like the computers. Uh, self-destruct features and so forth. Uh, and then there's a big explosion. Yeah, they, there is that cool. They're doing this all, by the way, by by calling in from a payphone. Yeah. <laughs> to to hack it. Um, and and when everything blows up, they're trying to like like shut it down and destroy Cameron Vale. And they don't quite destroy him, but they do channel a lot of psychic energy through a, um, a you know this uh, this remote uh, phone booth. And so we get the scene with the the phone receiver melting in his hand, and then yeah, more explosions. So there's some good stuff sprinkled in there, but yeah, you're right. It goes on a bit long, and of course is rooted in this kind of absurdity that feels a little bit out of pace with the rest of the picture. I mean, I like an exploding telephone booth. That's funny. But yeah, it's a little tonally different than the rest of the film. Yeah. But the good news is that once they get past that, like we're kind of back on the the original rails. So if you don't like this segment of the picture, uh, you don't have to worry too much about it because it's not going to ultimately play into the end game as much. Right. Okay. So if you don't want the final twist of the movie revealed, uh, you, you may take this opportunity to tune out because we... We have to to talk about what the the big reveal is. What was it? What's inside the secret computer? Well, it is a list of doctors who are prescribing ephemeral. Are they prescribing it? What, do they have scanner patients who want to make the voices stop? No. In fact, they're prescribing ephemeral to pregnant women as a just regular pregnant women as a tranquilizer. 
And we discover, in fact, that this is linked to the origin of the first batch of scanners. So ephemeral, the drug, was developed by Dr. Ruth, by Patrick McGowan, as a tranquilizer to be used during pregnancy. But it had the unintended side effect of causing children to be born with telepathic powers, to be born as scanners. And uh, after they discovered this, it was discontinued, but there are all these scanners out there now. And Revik and his co-conspirators are sending out more of this drug to be prescribed because he wants to make a new generation of scanners and eventually recruit them for his army. Mm. It's a fiendish plot, uh, but one that works. Like, it's not like Revik has a for him, a rational plan. Like he wants to make more people that are touched by the same ability uh, so that they can become the new status quo, that they can take over and they can uh, rebel against the, uh, uh, the the normal people that have made things so difficult for them. But Revik captures Vale and Oberist, and then it comes to the final showdown, which is another, I'd say, you know, if there's a standout secondary scene in the movie, people remember after the demonstration with the exploding head, it's probably this last scene, the showdown. Yeah. Like, can they top the exploding head? Well, they don't try to top it. They do something different that is even more horrifying, in my opinion. Oh, and we also get the reveal that um, that Revok and Vale are brothers, or at least that's what Revik says. Who knows if we can trust him? But he yeah. says that they are both Dr. Ruth's sons, that they are the oldest of the scanners and therefore the most powerful. Yeah, and somehow Dr. Ruth did something to make them like more powerful than all the other scanners, which is why they have these special abilities. Yeah. They can overpower even the other scanners. Yeah, they got like extra ephemeral in their, their milk when they were babies yeah. or something. So, yeah, we basically we get the, the scene which, you, you know, might expect or uh, if you've never seen it before, where Ravik is saying, join me, brother, uh, you know, join me on the dark side. We'll rise up. We'll rule over the, the new scanner babies together and take over the world. Uh, Cameron Vale, though, says, says, nope, I'm not going to do that and hits Revik in the head with a paperweight. And at that point, it's on. It's a scanner battle to the death with one psychic mind attempting to dominate the other and. Ooh, I don't know about you, Joe, but this this entire sequence, the sequence that I've seen before, mind you, just really creeped me out this time. And and oh. I I mean it. And I've seen a lot of stuff uh, in, in films. You know, I'm a kid who grew up watching the bad guys melt in slow motion on the Raiders VHS. Yeah, it's gross and it's <laughs> it's hard to watch, but it's also pretty astounding. Yeah, it's and I was really trying to break down like why is this so disturbing and why does it work so well? And I think they're basically like three factors. So first of all, uh the the obvious, our protagonist and antagonist here are both like literally destroying each other's bodies with their psychic powers here and perhaps destroying their own bodies as part of it as they channel these destructive powers. So like, you know, faces pulsating, stuff bursting. Um it's just really it's it's hard to watch, especially your hero, go through this level of physical trauma. Yeah. Secondly, the effects are just really good. These are just really solid practical effects. Like when Vale ends up gouging out parts of his own face that have just been bulging and pulsating and popping, it's just really just blah. It's just really gross. It's awful. I, I think part of the effect of why 
this scene is so bad because there are other scenes where like the hero of the movie gets injured, even, you know, traumatic injuries that aren't as awful as this. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because the injury appears to be some sort of deep systemic malfunction of the body rather than just like getting like cuts or, or uh, impacts or something. Yeah. This is not our hero getting shot in the shoulder or anything. This is like gouging parts of his face out and then eventually his eyeballs explode that that level of of trauma and i think that the third factor is that the body horror that we see in this scene is this weird mix of traumatic injury and mutation without ever actually crossing the line into a clear sense of movie mutation you know it's like their bodies don't seem to be coming completely other but the weird energies flowing through them are kind of horrifically exposing a hidden anatomy. And it's just dreadful to behold. Yeah. Like, like when you see veins, uh, like Ugh. pulsating in their arms and across their face, you're like, that doesn't match up to what I know is underneath yeah. the, the face or the arm. But I'm totally believing that, that what is being revealed there is real. Yeah. Well, it's the secret war being revealed. Yeah. But this yeah. time it's like underneath the skin. So, yeah, they, they're pulsating and uh, exploding, eventually erupting into fire. We get this kind of religious um, aura to it. His veil has twin flames in both of his palms and then, yeah, exploding. Uh, and then we get the, 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 the ending here where Oberus comes in. She finds Vale's just husk of a body. He's just completely immolated. And then she hears his voice. From over in the corner, there's Vale's coat. He has this big kind of cool jacket. Big, well, it's not a jacket. It's a full-fledged coat that he's wearing mm -hmm. in most of the film. And there's a character in the corner with that coat over them. They, they pull the coat back, and it looks like Revik, but it's not Revik's voice. It's not Revik's mind in there. Like, clearly in this battle of wills, this battle of minds, Vale won, and it's now his mind that occupies Revik's body. Yeah, he like pulled a fast one on him. We're led to believe that like he let Revik destroy his body, but somehow traded places with his consciousness. Yeah, yeah. And so we get this wonderful Cronenbergy ending where the end is the beginning. Our heroes have won because they embraced extreme change and extreme weirdness and uh, and perhaps kind of embraced a kind of post-human identity. You know, it's like the, the way out of, of this problem is through it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, becoming this different being. So computer scanning subplot aside, I, I think scanners holds up great. This is, uh, the, it, it's excellent. It's, it's gross in the parts that are supposed to be gross. It's shocking in the parts that are supposed to be shocking. It's also, I think actually much smarter and more thoughtful and more interesting than a lot of initial reviewers gave it credit for. Yeah. And weirder than you might remember it. I found it weirder than I remembered it. Yeah. I should also say that in rewatching the film, I was struck by the amount of care it seems to to give this granted fantastic and sci-fi horror vision of neurodiversity. Hmm. So you know, to be clear, horror movies are not a great place to look for nuanced or insightful views of things like mental illness. But there's there's probably a lot to dissect here concerning the way the scanner characters present these different ideas of neurodivergent, again, fantasy neurodivergent people in the given world. Oh, yeah. Like the, the way the struggles of the, the different scanner characters have manifested in like different outcomes in their lives. And we see the coping strategies they've come up with. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's that, that is interesting, like that that Vale never really had a coping strategy until he got a medication that like one guy had a coping strategy through through art that uh, Kim Obris did through community. 
Yeah. yeah. Like, like he has that kind of heartbreaking moment with the artist, with Pierce, where uh, he said, like Pierce is describing how the art keeps him sane. And he, and granted, he's, you know, doing his spy game kind of thing here. So he's being deceitful, but he, he says what seems rather honestly, he's like, but I don't, I don't have anything like that. I, I don't, I don't have this thing that you have to help me combat this problem. And that's why I need you to take me to Revic. And uh, I don't know that, that, that was, that kind of resonated with me. I really, I, that was a nice small moment in this uh, film. Yeah, I agree. All right. That's Scanners, uh, the, uh, the 1981 classic. Um, I don't think we'll be covering Scanners 2, Scanners 3, or the Scanner Cop movies. I don't know. Never say never, but <laughs> I feel like we, we covered the best one here. Yeah. I think the, the sequels kind of, they keep all the gross stuff and the heads exploding, but they do not retain the uh, the, the level of thoughtfulness of the original. Yeah, mostly I think I remember at one point, this was years and years back, we were talking about scanner face and what actors make the best scanner yes. face. So <laughs> I don't remember our findings, but I think we generally agreed that Michael Ironside is hired to beat. I think Scanner Cop has Richard Lynch in it, and I, I believe mm. Richard Lynch had a had a pretty good scanner face i bet he had a good one yeah um and of course david hewlett is in the the initial sequel and uh, i haven't seen him in that or i don't remember seeing him in that but i've seen hewlett and other things that he's, he's quite good in so mm. i was really impressed with the role that he has in uh, guillermo del toro's cabinet of curiosities he plays this uh, grave robber who's who's desperate to get enough um, gold fillings out of teeth to pay off bookies. And so he's trying Ugh. to rob graves in a haunted cemetery and encountering all sorts of horror. And it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, performance. <laughs> all right. Well, we're going to go ahead and shut the book on scanners here, but we'd love to hear from everyone out there. If you have memories or impressions of scanners, uh, if you saw it in the theater, we always love to hear those stories of people who saw these, uh, these films when they originally came out, or you have memories of the first time you saw it. Um, I would love to hear from anyone who did not know that head was going to blow up. What did you think when you watched this film for the first time? A reminder that we're primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. But here on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns and we just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. I blog about these episodes at samutamusic.com, but also you can go to letterbox.com. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D. And you'll find our username on there is Weird House. We have a list of all the films we've covered. This is the 99th film that we've covered on Weird House Cinema. The next film we cover will be the 100th film. Who knows what we'll pick for that. Ooh, that's putting a lot of pressure on, Robbie. We got to make a good choice. <laughs> yeah, or you just let that pressure dissipate by uh, exploding through the head. I don't know. Wait, may maybe we just pick something like normal, and it'll become special to us because it was the 100th picture. There you go. Uh, huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. 
No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.